Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Over the past 12 months, there's been increasing discussion about perhaps whether Google and Amazon and other big technology companies will become the next Wall Street. Here to talk about that with us is Keith Noraika. He's a partner in the financial institutions practice at Simpson, Thatcher and Bartlett. He's also former acting controller of the currency from May 5th to November 27th of last year. Uh, Keith, thank you so much for joining us. During your tenure, there was discussion that the OCC would be open to some kind of fintech charter allowing the Googles and Amazons of the world to uh, act more like banks. Can you talk a little bit about what future you envision for big tech as as, as banks? Well, sure. Thanks, uh, Lisa, for having me today. Um, <clears throat> during my tenure, um, we continued a, a, an a, um, initiative by my predecessor, Tom Curry, uh, that dealt with a fintech charter, which was a limited purpose charter um, that would allow uh, institutions to get a bank charter to undertake uh, one of the core elements of, of banking, taking deposits, lending money, or, or processing payments. And, and I think, you know, there was a concern um, of that, that, that large companies like Amazon or Google could get a charter. Now, um, in my own view, um, I don't necessarily see um, that that may be the case. I think they're they're sort of a superficial uh, allure uh, of that charter uh, for those companies. But on the other hand, a lot of regulation comes um, with getting a bank charter, um, and. Uh, these companies right now, um, the, these large tech companies, uh, have a good position in the market. They're heavily engaged in commerce, as we see. Um, and um, obviously, um, a part of commerce involves uh, processing payments to pay for commerce. Uh, and I think that um, what we're seeing is they're they're trying to take advantage of everything up to the up to the line uh, of being a bank uh, without actually having uh, to bear the responsibilities uh, of being a bank. And and banks have a lot of obligations and regulations that come with them and compliance obligations. Uh, and at the moment, at least, I think the model is more uh, of them trying to capture as much as they can of the, the non-bank um, sort of financial market. Uh, but still having to ultimately use banks to uh, process and clear payments and, and to do all the compliance obligations uh, that come with them. And uh, so while there you know, may uh, in the future be some type of limited purpose bank charter uh, available to them, just as there has been in the past for big industrial companies, that's, that's our history uh, and tradition in this co country to allow certain limited purpose banking charters uh, to large industrial companies and tech may be the the new um, sort of industry uh, that that may support. Um, I don't foresee um, them becoming uh, the new Wall Street, uh, so to speak, because there's a lot of um, regulation that just necessarily comes uh, from processing and clearing payments and from really handling the type of risks that come from uh, from from that type of activity. Well, and Keith, that's what I wanted to ask. When you were at the acting OCC chair, in your conversations with executives at Google and Amazon and other big technology companies, was there the desire 
to get further into uh, this territory and, and be processors of payment systems? Well, um, first, I guess, start with the premise of the question. I, I actually never had any conversations uh, with uh, any executives from those companies. And I think that, you know, that may tell you uh, a lot right there, um, that there wasn't uh, that desire to pursue that. Now, you know, we're starting to see some limited interest uh, in the traditional limited purpose charters like uh, – you know, Square uh, has filed uh, an application for an industrial loan company. That's usually the the, the way um, that that these type of uh, commercial companies, if you will, uh, get into a limited purpose uh, bank charter, uh, or traditionally has been that case. The fintech charter is is somewhat new; it's never been used, uh, and we'll see how that goes. That's obviously something for my uh, successor uh, to deal with, uh, rather than me. Uh, but I think that. Um, you know, there there wasn't yet the sort of interest that I saw of those large companies, uh, even even in our, our even in the OCC's uh, proposed limited purpose charter. Can you just tell us succinctly what does the comptroller of the currency do? What is that person's specific responsibility? Sure, um, the comptroller of the currency uh, charters and supervises the national banks in this country, which hold approximately seventy to eighty percent of the banking assets uh, uh, in the United States, and it's uh, it's a. Um, um, an office that date back, dates back to the Civil War as a, a means to provide a national currency for the country. The currency function was later tra- transferred to the Federal Reserve in 1913, but the, the office remains as an independent bureau of the Treasury Department uh, to supervise, um, really, um, the money center banks, but also many community banks across the country. Okay, so then what would, it, what would be the requirements if you wanted to start your own community bank? Well, if you want to start your own community bank, you have to satisfy the chartering requirements uh, that you have a reasonable prospect for success. You have a good management team. You have a business plan. Uh, the OCC has to have confidence in you to grant that charter. But then uh, most of the times uh, in this country, you also will need to go get FDIC insurance. That's a separate application to the FDIC. Uh, and if you want to have uh, any sort of controlling investor of your company, you need to become a bank holding company and get permission for that from the from the Federal Reserve Board. So given the fact that the OCC oversees uh, the monetary supply, what's your take on Bitcoin and uh, all of these uh, cryptocurrencies that are getting increasingly popular? Well, look, I think um, there is uh, a lot of interest in this. And I would say my um, my agency only dealt with a very small part of this. I think we're seeing uh, certain securities issues uh, come into into play here where the SEC uh, may be taking the lead with the Treasury Department because of uh, you know any type of anti-terrorism uh, type of or, or money laundering concerns. But generally, um, I am you know I believe that people should be able to order their affairs uh, in a way that uh, makes the most sense for them. And if there's a certain unit of value that they wish to base their transactions on. Uh, then you know they should be free to do that, but they need to be fully aware of the risks that may come from that. And just to come full circle, when we were talking about fintech charters, uh, which firm do you think is sort of most positioned to engage in more bank-like 
activities that we should pay attention to? Well, look, I think um, to me, uh, the big challenge was finding a, a, a firm. I, I think you know, in my own view, I was open to granting such a charter, uh, but there wasn't necessarily a good match uh, at the time of during my tenure uh, of a company that was willing to adhere to sort of bank-like restrictions and have sort of bank-like um, prospects of success. And so, you know, when you look at the smaller companies, a lot of these fintech companies are more tech-like in the sense of they're more uh, try it, see how it works. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. That That's not really the way the OCC charters banks uh, in this country or any bank regulator for that matter. Uh, there has to be sort of, uh, there's sort of a, a right. reputational element. Um, and so, so I'm, I'm, I, I, we didn't find one uh, during my tenure, so I think we're going to have to see. All right, we got to leave it there. Thanks very much, uh, Keith Norieka. He is a partner in the financial institutions practice of Simpser, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Celgene is spending a lot of money. They have announced that they're going to be spending $9 billion for Juno Therapeutics. Also, Sanofi spending about $11.5 billion for BioVerative. Here to help us understand this merger activity is Max Neeson, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. He covers healthcare, biotechnology, and pharmaceuticals. Max, uh, I'm looking at your most recent column that you just put out, and uh, you are skeptical about the price that the companies are paying for this. You say that uh, perhaps this just is a case of uh, being forced to do mergers. Why is that? So both companies are, are under a good deal of pressure to do a, a sizable deal for, for a couple of different reasons. Celgene last year cut their long-term revenue forecast, ended up really doing a, a big hit to the share price. And then Sanofi, um, you know, it's involved heavily in the diabetes business with some aging products and a lot of price competition. It also kind of swung and missed on, on two big deals over the past couple of years. So it was really looking to get something done. And um, I, I do think that that pressure might have played a role in, in moving these companies to do deals that, that definitely have risks. Okay, so let's talk about those risks. First of all, why don't you start with the deal that you think holds the most risks? And interestingly, both uh, Celgene and Sanofi's shares both declined. Uh, and perhaps that had to do with the price that they were paying for their uh, acquisition targets. I, I definitely think so. I, I'd say if I had to pick one that has the, the biggest kind of downside risk, it's, it's probably Sanofi's deal. Um, it's for a company, BioVerative, that focuses on hemophilia and um, it sells kind of prophylactic treatments that you take ahead of time to reduce the likelihood of a, of a bleeding event um, and, and make Just them, to be clear, yeah. hemophilia is when your blood can't clot. Yeah, so it's a clotting would, disorder, oh, right, exactly, a genetic one. But uh, there are a bunch of companies that are working on kind of gene therapies that, that potentially offer um, one-time effective cures for hemophilia. They're very early stage. We still don't know if they're going to kind of work and last and they're going to be really expensive, but that's kind of an existential threat to this company's business model. And they're working on the same thing, but really early stage. They're way behind some of these other firms. So, you know, this is going to be a near-term uh, boost for their sales and, and earnings, but, you know, it, it really could go pretty badly. Celgene, um, you know, they're making a, a bet on these kind of new cell therapies that offer a potential cure for blood cancers. But um, it's a company that's a little bit late to the first generation of these treatments. 
And um, so that means that this is a big bet on the future generations, the kind of more advanced and safer versions of these therapies. And there are a lot of companies involved in that. Um, you know, it's unclear if, if Juno and Celgene are going to come ahead. So, so there are risks with that as well. Now, BioVerative, uh, based in Waltham, Mass., home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. We, of course, uh, welcome all of our listeners. They've got, what, 300, 400 employees? I mean, this is not a... I'm just saying, this is a $11.5 billion deal. They Do they have something so special for hemophilia and blood disorders that would create this kind of premium? I mean, if you got 400 employees and someone's spending $11.5 billion, you better have something. Yeah, so that that's the thing that I, I And find if it was so little... great, why did Biogen spin them off? Exactly. I mean, so I think Biogen's motivation was that they're trying to become more narrowly focused on um, on neurology, on, on disease of the brain, and this was kind of ancillary to that. But, um, you know, that that is the thing that's troubling. They're paying a big premium for that kind of near-term growth boost. There are some, you know, longer-term prospects for, for growth that more people are going to move to this sort of prophylactic treatment uh, from kind of the acute treatment. No, no, no. I understand yeah, that on the, but, on, the, on the medical side. But, yeah. I mean, this company is, it's a $900 million revenue company. So, I mean, is there a metric, is there some kind of magic formula that they ended up coming up with this $11.5 billion price tag? You know, with, with biotech, it's always a little bit of the, you know, the kind of on-market growth. And you have to pay a premium for that because there's just not that many companies with kind of recently approved and growing drugs. Uh, and then there's the fact that you put some premium on the pipeline, which, you know, is always an exercise in, in kind of shaking a, a magic eight ball. Um, you, you do your best based on the science and, you know, evaluating similar treatments that are actually on the market, but you really have no idea until they hit the market and start selling. How are these companies planning to pay for their acquisitions? How, how, do they, sorry. how are they going to pay for them? I mean, oh, is this, um, this going to be you know, like leveraging up yeah, and a little pulling bit. a valiant? Fees, fees leveraging up to some degree, I think. Um, but, you know, they, they both have a ton of cash. You know, these are really high margin businesses, the drug business in general, you're always going to have money to make acquisitions to build it to finance them. But, um, you know, the type of return you're going to generate, um, there's a lot more variance than in just about any other business making an acquisition. You could have, you know, no return or very little uh, very easily. All right. So uh, real quick, which company do you think will be the next to announce a big acquisition in the bio biopharmaceutical space? Um, I would guess if it's anyone, it's going to be Amgen, uh, really enormous cash pile, hasn't made a deal in, in some time. And, um, you know, all of that uh, overseas cash coming and they have a particularly large chunk of it. Um, I, I'd say they're, they're probably next up. All right, Max Neeson, thank you so much for joining us. Max Neeson is biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist with Bloomberg Gadfly joining us here in our 1130 studios. AIG certainly getting our attention today. It is starting to reverse course after years of retrenchment. And here to talk about the latest uh, moves that this insurance behemoth made. Jonathan Adams joins us now. He's senior insurance an industry analyst uh, who joins us for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, from Princeton. Jonathan, thank you so much for, for being with us. So AIG is buying Validus. Put this into perspective for us. How big of a deal is this for AIG, and is it the right move? 
It's a uh, $5.6 billion deal and not huge in terms of um, what types of transactions we've seen uh, in the industry over the past. Uh, it increases uh, their commercial uh, lines premium by about 10%, a little bit over. Um, in terms of whether it is strategically a good move, um, I think it's a it's quite a risk, and uh, it's moving into the reinsurance business at a time when that business has faced some difficult pricing pressure. Not only that, uh, you may recall that AIG posted three billion dollars of catastrophe losses in the third quarter, and that was due to significant exposure they have in their property lines business. They said at the time they were looking for opportunities to lower the volatility in that business and that they would lower their uh, exposure to uh, property risk. This deal adds that exposure because that's a primary business for Validus. So I'm not sure it ultimately will complete uh, some of the strategic moves that the company wanted to, uh, uh, to do. So why do this deal? Well, uh, CEO Brian Duperol has uh, said that he wanted to expand AIG and he wanted to make an acquisition that would help the company grow. Um, this certainly uh, fits in that category to some degree. Uh, it adds some new lines of business. Validus has a crop uh, business that uh, AIG does not participate in that, in that business, so it, it helps them there. And it also helps them in their specialty lines business. So there are some areas where they could uh, generate some premium growth, and it does um, add to earnings uh, and their returns. But again, um, I think at a, at a very costly price, it actually is slightly dilutive to their tangible book value. And uh, I'm not sure this would be the, the first deal I would um, I would look toward. Well, Jonathan, I'm confused because a lot of people have been calling for AIG to uh, break up further into its parts. It was, uh, of course, pummeled during the 2008 credit crisis, um, and it has stripped down its business quite a bit. Is this sort of signaling that it's now going to embark on bulking back up and uh, going in the opposite direction of what a lot of people are saying? It certainly looks that way. And although I, I admire Validus's management team, it's certainly a good group of individuals. Uh, I'm not sure uh, the business uh, offers the types of return that um, really investors would, would want to see um, when AIG uh, returns to the expansion mode, which obviously it's done, and I think this signals they'll continue to do so. Uh, but again, I'm not sure this is uh, leading with your uh, strongest foot. Just, I mean, I, this is just, you know, uh, speculative, uh, Jonathan, but five and a half billion dollars is a lot of money. Why wouldn't they just increase the dividend? Well, I think that goes to uh, the CEO's philosophy and the importance that he puts on signaling to the market <clears throat> that AIG's downsizing is over and it's uh, time to look to new industries and to expand. I think that... But couldn't uh, they... I mean, and, and clearly, I'm not, I don't want to put you in the position of having to you know, uh, offer your AIG their pr the perspective, but... For five and a half billion dollars, couldn't they have built their own agriculture insurance business? The, the, the agriculture business is um, 
very much of a, a regulated business, so that maybe isn't the best example. But in terms of expanding their specialty lines, yes, they certainly could add more underwriters and, and have uh, expanded in that area, um, even though they chose to acquire. So uh, from my point of view, I think what they probably would say to you is, look, we've got a great management team in Validus. We think they've done well in diversifying their own business. We like how they assess risk. Uh, to my point about their desire to, to reduce risk and volatility, they would probably say, what better way than to bring in uh, the expert team from a reinsurer that knows how to handle that risk? And that expertise is what we're going to use. I think that's what they right. tell you. Again, my concern is that they still are bringing in a lot of uh, exposure uh, and risk onto the books as they do that. Thanks very much. Uh, Jonathan Adams is our senior insurance industry analyst talking about AIG spending $5.5 billion for Validus. The future of General Electric. What do we see as the future of the industrial conglomerate? Karen Eubelhardt is our industrials analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and she has the enviable task of watching what happens with GE. Karen, what can you tell us about their actual strategy? We'll get into the details of a sort of potential aircraft engine uh, sort of deal in a moment, but what is actually the strategy for GE as laid out by management? Well, it is evolving. Uh, you know, the the event last week was uh, on the insurance problems on that call. Um, Setting they, aside money because of long-term care policies yes. that were sold about a decade ago. Yes, but uh, for the first time, the CEO did uh, suggest that he, you know, might get pro uh, go for selling parts of businesses, spins, more aggressive moves, which people really were looking for. Oh, so, which businesses could they or should they sell that would generate the biggest premium, the biggest price, while not totally butchering? The core of the company. Uh, that that's the the good businesses are healthcare and aviation. I don't think they'll let go of them. They need the earnings. They need the cash flow. I, you know, the most immediate one would be Baker Hughes and a couple of the smaller businesses, which in aggregate would actually help solve the problem if they put all the cash toward debt and their pension. It would solve a go a long way. Well, Bank of America Merrill Lynch coming out today with a downgrade uh, of the shares, um, perhaps a little bit late. I mean, the shares trading at around sixteen dollars uh, right now. The but, lowest since December two thousand and eleven, you should say. Yeah. Well, okay. Good footnote there. Um, but it, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's also uh, a report that General Electric may supply the engines for the uh, A380 Super Jumbos that Emirates has ordered from Airbus. Would that be enough to really change the perception of GE's aviation business? Uh, the perception of the aviation business is really good. It's 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 you know it's an eighty four billion dollar business. It's got twenty seven percent EBITDA margins, um, you know mid twenties just EBIT margins. Uh, very well positioned, high you know a lot of parts annuity. But they don't do it alone, right? I mean, they do it in conjunction with Pratt and. Whitney, I believe. And well, those are those are the two one. engine supply. Yeah, right. Those are the two major engines. And then also suppliers. they got to deal with Safran. Yes, right? that's a JV. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, why not spin off the aviation business? Uh, that would materially, I guess, because it's one of the. the I mean, it, it is a standalone. It would make some sense. However, 
they would lose a lot of the earnings while they have a, sort of a credit crunch and cash issue. Uh, you know, I um, and then they'd have an earnings problem. But I think it would make some sense since it is a crown jewel. Okay, this might be a really basic question, but how will GE go about trying to solicit offers or solicit, you know, some estimates of what other companies would pay for their businesses right now without undermining their value? Well, they're in a weakened state, uh, no no doubt, right? I mean, I've done a sum of the parts valuation that does show there is, you know, a decent amount of value, um, low 20s, um, equity value. However, they're going to take haircuts on selling these businesses because as a stock you know, weakens and people get liquidity fear, fear, fears, um, they're not going to get those f- full value. So, uh, you know, they're going to have to, they're going to shop the, uh, Baker Hughes, they can just start selling down. Now they have a restriction, but that can be dealt with. They have to go to uh, Baker Hughes uh, conflict committee, which is part of the board and, and, and you know, ask to get out early because they, they're not legal. They, the deal is they can't sell down till July, 2019. Um, you know, so that, that's step one, but that's a fair amount of uh, value that they could get out of that. Um, so that would be, one fast move they could do uh, without having to, you know, they have to get permission, of course, but they don't have to look for it. the market setting the value. So that and that's would the, be, okay. Yeah. So that's Baker Hughes. What about the Alstom uh, acquisition? Could they are they going to write that off? Do you think that's the latest that people are um, speculating on? Uh, I don't know that they're going to take a big write off in power yet. Uh, you know, in, in the fourth quarter, you have to take a look at all your assets. That's why that issue is coming up for discussion. It's possible. I think that they will hold on to that um, at its current value at this point. Do you have a sense of what the time frame is that GE is following with the asset sales? Well, I don't know that they have any specifically underway. So I but I know that uh, with the liquidity concerns that it's going to be sooner, sooner than uh, later. They haven't. I mean, the the um, that's the first time he really talked about it. I think he's seeing the seriousness of we've got to do something bigger. So I think you're going to you're definitely going to see something, uh, you know, sometime this year, in my opinion. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they announced something on Baker Hughes in the short term, actually. Karen Ubelhart, thank you so much for joining us. Karen Ubelhart is industrials analyst for Bloomberg is joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.